If you have your notebooks, turn them to page 5. And I want to make some announcements. And then we'll get in today's lesson that begins on page 5. This Tuesday at 6 o'clock, those who are in the friends group, that is our 60 and over group, there is a, an event to help with our vacation Bible school. And you're going to be doing some cutting out, I think, of some uh, items that are needed for VBS, and VBS starts this coming Sunday. So if you're in the friends group, and you can help with that this Tuesday, 6 o'clock here at the Ministry Center, that'd be great. And then Vacation Bible School starts Sunday night, runs through Thursday night from 6 to 8.30. If you have not registered your child, then I encourage you to uh, do that before you leave today. You can do so at the uh, resource, or excuse me, at the Information Center. And then on Wednesday the 20th, so two weeks from this Wednesday, we have a backyard fellowship at the home of David and Christy Brinkley in Gibraltar. We have maps to their place that are located in, at the uh, information center, so pick those up. That'll start at 6.30, and uh, that information and what we ask you to bring is in your, your program. And those of you that are newcomers, we have two things that we want you to make note of. One is that we have our periodic brunch at our house Uh, on Saturday, September the 6th, Saturday, September the 6th. So mark that date, if you would. If you're a newcomer, which is defined as you've never been to one of our brunches, you may have been coming around here for a long time, but the dates upon on which those fell didn't work out for you. So if you've never been to one of the brunches, we would love to have you come. And uh, that's at 10 a.m. at our house, and it's uh, Saturday, September the the 6th. And if you would like to be a part of that, just let them know at the Information Center because we want to know how many people are coming so we know how much food to prepare. And then the following day, September 7th, we'll begin that Sunday, four Sundays in a row of our newcomers orientation. And that is a four-week class during this hour that I lead for all of those who are new to our church and would like to know more about it. It's a class that is for information to help you make a decision as to whether or not CBC is the place that God would have you to grow and serve. There's no obligation. We don't hassle you. We don't follow up with you to say, okay, you took the class. Now what are you going to do? None of that. In fact, on the fourth week of that class, I say, okay, you've heard this stuff. Here are your options, and the ball is in your court, and we leave it at that. So don't fear to come to that class that you've somehow obligated yourself to anything you have not. But I do encourage you to take it if you have any thought that this might be a long-term place for you so that you can find more out about us and help you make an informed decision. So that will be the four Sundays in September, 7, 14, 21, and 28, during this hour, the 11 o'clock hour. All right, we are in our series, Where is God When It Hurts? And I trust everyone has a notebook, and we are on page 5 today. And you see from the title at the top that we are looking at God's perspective on our suffering, suffering in the hand of of God. And we're going to look at a number of precepts that relate to our suffering that will apply to any kind of suffering that you might be called to endure. And then in next week's lesson, we will go to a new section. You see up at the top of page 5, it says section 1, the pain of suffering. That's what we've been doing these opening weeks, that first section. But then we're going to go to a new section, and we're going to look at the purposes of suffering. So right now, you may have questions as we go through today's lesson 
regarding what is the purpose for what I'm going through right now. And I would encourage you to hold on to that until we get into the next section, which, which is titled The Purposes of Suffering. But for, for today, God's perspective on our suffering or suffering and the, the hand of God. And you see at the t- near the top of page 5, the example, the prime example for this is the biblical character of Job. We've alluded to Job a few times during this series. Many of you are familiar with his story. But just quickly, I recount for you the fact that Job is said to be, in the book that bears his name in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, he is said to be an upright man, a a righteous man who feared God and shunned evil. From the opening verses of the book of Job, God takes pains to make clear that the things that are going to transpire now in the next 42 chapters and all of the very difficult things that take place in Job's life are not, are not, because of something Job did in particular. Job was an upright man, a righteous man, and he was one who feared God and who shunned evil. And yet, that opening chapter tells us about a contest of sorts that occurred between God and Satan. The Bible tells us that Satan came to present himself to God. Now, just that phrase, the idea that Satan presents himself to God, ought to alter some of your theology a bit because many have the idea that you have two equal and opposing forces out there, a good force and a bad force, and we hope the good one wins. And we Christians are rooting for God to win because if God wins, then we'll inherit the earth as we saw in the, in the uh, first hour. If God doesn't win, well, all bets are off. Okay? And the Bible doesn't present these two equal opposing forces. They are quite unequal. As a matter of fact, Satan is a creation of God. All things and all beings were created by God, and Satan is is infinitely inferior to God. And Satan is further subject to God. Satan can do nothing without God's permission at all. And he presents himself to God and seeks permission in the opening chapter of Job to test Job and and God accepts this this challenge. God didn't have to accept the challenge. It's implied, but he chose to do so for his purposes. And the challenge was, Satan said, Job only serves you because of what you do for Job. If you take those things away from Job, then Job will curse you and, and die. Now, if you read through the first chapter of Job, which I encourage you to do, read through the entire book, gets kind of rough sledding when you get into the speeches of his so-called friends. But in the beginning and the end, the bookends of that book are amazing. And at the very beginning, one of the things you should note when you read that first chapter is it is God who brings Job to Satan's attention. God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Hey, what do you think of that Job guy? I mean, it's kind of it's kind of like you know we the Tigers just made a trade, and we got David Price, who's a former Cy Young award-winning pitcher. So now we have the last three Cy Young award winners from 2011, 12, and and 13 uh, on our team. So we'll see what that what that gets us. But every now and then, a baseball fan will say, "Hey, what about that David Price? Hey, what about that uh, Scherzer? What about Verlander?" Uh, Nobody ever says, hey, what about Phil Coke? (laughs) Sometimes people say, hey, what about Phil Coke? What is that deal with? 
But it's, it's said in a way that sort of brags on, on the person. And this is the way it's presented in Job 1. Hey, what, what about that Job guy? What do you think about that, Satan? <clears throat> God is the one who brings it up. And then Satan says he only serves you because of the things you give him. If you take those things away from him, he will curse you and, 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 and die. And, uh, and, and God takes him on. He says, I'll allow you to take valuable things from him, his properties and his cattle. But even his children were taken from him, the Bible tells us, in a, in a single day. And yet, the Bible tells us Job did not curse God. Quite the contrary. And so Satan, sometime later, comes back to God, and that's not enough, and he wants to go for more. He wants to, to harm Job personally. You've taken these things, but if, I harm, if, you, if you allow me to harm him personally, then you'll see what the real Job is about. And God gives him permission to do that, but God says, but you cannot take his life. Now, again, who's in control of this situation? Now, that one chapter should put out of business all of the health, wealth, God wants you healthy and wealthy people on TV. I mean, they're the ones who preach the equal opposing uh, uh, gods out there. Satan is, in fact, a, a god in the view of these heretics. And yet Satan is not on an equal par with God, never has been and never will be. He asks this permission and God grants it to, them, to him. And then we know what, uh, what happened. The rest of the story, Job remained faithful to God, and at the end of the story, Job's fortunes are, are restored to him, but not before he suffered great, great pain. So God is, has a perspective on all suffering that occurs, to state what should be, be obvious. And in the case of Job, Job's response to all that happened to him, as his wife said, Job, now's the time for you to curse God and die. He says, in that first chapter, he says, shall we receive good from the Lord, but not evil? He was willing to accept both as from the hand of God and to entrust the purposes that God has in those things to God, the good and the bad. Now, I read an illustration recently of someone, a Christian person, who did this in his profession. Some of you may remember from many years ago a tennis star, uh, an American tennis star named Michael Chang. And Michael Chang uh, was not only a, a champion tennis player, but he was also a devout Christian. And at the end of each of his matches, he would pray and give thanks to God. And he would give thanks to God whether he won or lost. Now, think about that. That's somebody who has proper theology. Because we accept good from the Lord and we accept difficulty from the Lord as well. Because we understand that both of them ultimately come to us from his hand. How many times have you seen a baseball player hit a home run, and then they get to home plate and they point? Hey, you're my guy. God, you're my guy. We're tight. Because you let me hit home runs. Has anyone ever seen a guy make an error and go, hey? Yeah, <laughs> we're tight. But... A proper theology would do that. would say in the midst of the good and the bad and everything that happens, God is, is in the mix. And God is central in the mix in the book of Job, but also in, in all of life. And God could have refused Satan's challenge 
but he did not. Which raises then a question. Why doesn't God just say no? I'm not going to let this happen. I was this week thinking about some historical events that if they had gone just another way, just one decision had gone another way, it could have changed the course of recent American history. I was thinking about these matters because uh, just coming up on August the the 9th, uh, this Saturday, is the 40th anniversary of the resignation of uh, President Nixon. He resigned as a result, you all know, of the Watergate scandal. But as, I was, as I've read some things about that over the last few weeks and watched some things related to that, uh, one of the things I read was that President Nixon's voice is on tapes. You all remember the taping system that was ultimately his demise? He's on tape telling his aide, H.R. Haldeman, to destroy the tapes. He's on tape saying, destroy the tapes. As this thing is unraveling, he says, you know, we need to get rid of these tapes. So Haldeman, will you get rid of the tapes? And Haldeman says, yes, I'll get rid of the tapes. Well, we have his voice saying get rid of the tapes, so he obviously didn't get rid of the tapes. And Haldeman went to jail, and Nixon had to resign. And the question is, what if Haldeman, one, Haldeman's dead now. I would love to ask Haldeman, so why didn't you get rid of the tapes? I'm just wondering. Now, my theory is that Haldeman knew if he gets rid of the tapes... He's still going to be thrown under the bus. He needs the tapes to show that I wasn't just acting on my own. The president was involved in this. But he said he would. He didn't. And it was ultimately the president's undoing. But how would things have been different had that one thing not happened? You know, we could speculate a lot. But in all likelihood, Nixon would have continued in office to the end of his term in 76. And that would have been eight years of a Republican president. It's hard for any one party to go beyond eight years. It happens. Reagan had eight years. Bush, the senior, had four. So it's happened. FDR had, uh, would have had 16 had he lived. Uh, but it's, it's hard for one party to have that. So in 76, who would have been, who would have been elected? It's hard to, hard to say. Would Ronald Reagan have been elected in 1980? If Nixon had continued as president through 76, again, hard to say, perhaps not. Just one decision not to destroy the tapes had a profound effect. Here's another one. Many of you know that the way justices are put on the Supreme Court in our country is by nomination of the president, and then those who are nominated have to be confirmed by the, uh, the Senate. And those nominations and those confirmation hearings can become pitched battles uh, depending on who is being replaced by whom. If a liberal justice on the Supreme Court is being replaced by a conservative justice, it's going to be a war. If a conservative justice is being replaced by a liberal justice, it'll be less of a war but still a skirmish. And we had one such case in 1987 when a liberal justice was resigning, retiring from the Supreme Court, and Ronald Reagan was president, and he nominated a man named Robert Bork to be the replacement. Some of you are old enough to remember that. And the Bork hearings were quite a national sensation. In fact, uh, Bork's name has become a verb. People get borked. 
so when they nominate now someone, they're concerned, will he or, he or she get borked by, by the Senate? And he was ultimately not confirmed. Now, here's the back story to that as quickly as I can. Uh, President Reagan was in office for eight years. He had his first opportunity to uh, appoint a uh, justice in the first year of his presidency, and he, he appointed Sandra O'Connor. And she won easy confirmation as the first woman on the Supreme Court. But then in 1986, he had a second opportunity, and he appointed Antonin Scalia. Antonin Scalia won unbelievably easy confirmation. By a vote of 98 to 0 in the U.S. Senate, he was confirmed. Now, part of that was because he was a, cons- a Republican, a conservative, replacing a conservative. There wasn't a lot of controversy. The other reason was he was the first Italian-American to be put on the court. So he went on easily. But the next year, a third vacancy, a liberal being replaced by now potentially a conservative, and Bork is nominated. And it breaks loose, and he is ultimately defeated. So now the administration has to replace Bork after a bruising, you know, month-long battle with the Senate. And they come up with a name, a guy named Douglas Ginsburg, not related to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. He was a conservative professor at Harvard. His nomination lasted two days. The reason it only lasted two days is because it was quickly revealed that he had smoked marijuana with his students at Harvard just within two years of his, of his nomination. So this wasn't something he did when he was a kid in the 60s. He's a professor. He's with his students. He's a conservative guy, and he's smoking weed with his, with his students. So his nomination's gone, and now the administration is flailing. We got borked. We got weeded. <laughs> now what? Now we've got to have somebody who's going to be a surefire, middle-of-the-road nominee. And that surefire, middle-of-the-road nominee was Anthony Kennedy, who was still on the court. And to this day, Anthony Kennedy is, is always on the knife's edge. You never know what decision he's going to make, which way it's going to go. He was truly a middle-of-the-road guy. Now, why does anybody care about this? Probably no one does except me, but thank you for your patience. Five years later, 1992, there was a case that came before the Supreme Court, Casey uh, uh, versus Planned Parenthood. And it was an opportunity for the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade from 1973. And the outcome of that case was a five to four decision to uphold Roe versus Wade, uphold. Uh, one of the five that voted to uphold Roe versus Wade was Anthony, none other than Anthony Kennedy. If that justice had been Robert Bork, Roe v. Wade would have been overturned. Had that justice been Douglas Ginsburg, Roe v. Wade would not be the law of the land today. Now, one other item of interest to me is this. That in 1986, when Scalia won easy confirmation, 98 to nothing, the administration came within a hair of appointing not Scalia but somebody else and waiting until another opportunity might perhaps happen under the administration of Reagan or the next, hopefully, Republican administration in their eyes to let Scalia have a few more years on the federal bench before he was promoted to the Supreme Court. And the person that they were considering in 1986, instead of Scalia, was a guy named, anybody know this name, Kenneth Starr? Kenneth Starr became the prosecutor in the Whitewater hearings against uh, President Clinton. But he was a conservative, and had he been nominated instead of Scalia, all court watchers say this is the way it would have gone. 
he would have won easy confirmation, as did Scalia. And the following year, Scalia, instead of Bork, would have been nominated. And he would have made it on the court, probably with a fight, but nonetheless would have made it. And five years later, Roe v. Wade would have been struck down. Now, what a cool thing that would have been. And it didn't happen that way. Now, you look at things like that, and history is replete with decisions and non-decisions and happenings and non-happenings and all of the what-ifs that flow out of that. And you ask yourself, why didn't God make it happen? Or, conversely, why did God allow it to happen? And that's the question that all of us naturally ask. Now, next week we'll look at God's purposes for why he allows a number of, a number of these kinds of things. But for now, we all ask those kinds of questions, and many of the things that happen are on the knife's edge. And they could have gone either way from our perspective, but God has ordained his plan to allow them to go a particular way. And so we ask, why did it happen? Now, sometimes we ask that as if God should intervene and keep all the bad stuff from happening. Now, think about that. If God intervenes and keeps all of, the bad, all of the bad things from happening, then it means that sin has no consequence. And, of course, sin, being high treason against Almighty God, cannot but have not only consequence but dire consequence. So the idea that God should intervene and, and restrict any bad from happening to us defies logic if we indeed live in a fallen, sinful world. That's another reason why the health and wealth types are wrong. If you think of the logic of what you're being told by the TV evangelists who say, God wants you always to be healed and never to be sick. Right? That's what they say. That is what they say. God never wants you to be sick. I, I had, we had a fellow in our church a few years ago uh, he contracted cancer. He, he ultimately died. He had uh, been befriended by someone who had been influenced outside our church. Uh, this person was and had been influenced by these TV preachers who said, God never wants you sick. And he's telling this brother that. And this brother is saying to me, hey, this guy's telling me God doesn't ever want you sick. And I said, listen, the Bible is replete with examples of people who were sick. Okay, one. But secondly, you do know we're all going to die unless the rapture occurs. So if these guys on TV are right, how does anyone die? I mean, if God doesn't want anybody sick, how does anybody die? And they don't have an answer for that, just like they don't have an answer for Job. So God allows these things. And God allows these things because they are consistent with the necessary consequences of being in a fallen world. And so look on page 5. That means everyone will suffer. Precept number 1, everyone will suffer. God created man and woman with the capacity to transgress. Therefore, God programmed into his creation the possibility of suffering. Since the first sin, fear and alienation have plagued us. Sadly... The resulting curse has affected everyone, godly and ungodly alike. No one is exempt from pain. It's a common denominator for all of us. As members of the human race, we all experience suffering. 
So because of sin, because of the fall, it is a necessary and logical consequence that there will be painful results for that. And for God to remove all of those is to say sin has no no consequence. Precept number two, all suffering has meaning. Suffering is not accidental, nor is it incidental. It's not the result of randomness or chaos. It's allowed by God because suffering is purposeful. Therefore, our responses to it are very important. Now, again, next week we start a section on the purposes that God has in suffering. But for now, just the statement that all suffering is purposeful. Some of you may know the name Viktor Frankl, who spent two years in Auschwitz concentration camp. He was a Jewish doctor. And he, in his time in this concentration camp, was used by the Nazis to actually operate and, and help uh, those who were injured, sick, and who they wanted to get back out on the, the rock pile. And so this Jewish doctor had the difficult task of treating patients, Jewish patients, who were being mistreated by the Nazis. And he survived, and he wrote about his experience, and he said uh, he would sometimes ask them, quote, why do you not commit suicide, given all that you are suffering and going through? And he determined that, as he spoke with patient after patient, that all of them, though they couldn't explain it, all of them assumed that there was some meaning in their, in their suffering. They didn't know what that meaning was, but what kept them alive, what kept them going, despite all the difficulties, was that they were convinced that there was some meaning to it. Corrie Ten Boom, Christian uh, woman who uh, spent time in a concentration camp in the 40s. She said this of her time there, We are in God's training school learning much. That was her perspective, even in the midst of that kind of unspeakable difficulty. Meaning in suffering. If you're convinced that there is meaning, even if you don't know what the particular purpose at this point in time is, but you do believe that there is, there is meaning ultimately, then it will cause you to endure difficulty. Think about what athletes do. Athletes endure pain because it has meaning for them. Uh, pregnant women endure pain because it has meaning for them. And if God can tell us that there is meaning in our suffering, which we will, will see, that he has purposes and meaning in our suffering, then that will grant us a perspective on it that gives us the kind of motivation that you see in other realms of human life, Athle- athletics, family life, and so on. Because God has a plan, no suffering is meaningless. So all suffering has meaning. Precept number three. Suffering comes from multiple sources. God seeks to accomplish different purposes through suffering. Some are tied directly to the reasons that we suffer. And so sometimes it's important for us to understand what might be causing us to suffer in order to know how it is that we need to respond. So here are some of the sources of our suffering. Sometimes it's because we just live in a broken and fallen world. Philosophers refer to this as pain and suffering due to natural law. So sometimes you'll hear of insurance claims after a hurricane or something like that, and they'll refer to that as acts of what? Or acts of who? Acts of God. 
because this world is not what God designed it to be, will experience disease, disorder, disillusionment, and despair. So that's one source of suffering. Another is on page 6. Supernatural causes. And we see that in the example that we've talked about with, with Job. But then it starts to get, I mean, they're all difficult. But look at this third one. We encounter suffering because of other people's choices. Suffering may result from the choices and behavior of both Christians and non-Christians. We may be hurt intentionally or unintentionally by other people. Now, this is where it starts to get really difficult for me personally. When other people do stuff and I suffer the consequences of what other people did. I don't want a show of hands, but I just want you to, to think about this. How many of you are dealing with consequences that were brought on you because of things that other people did? Whether in your childhood, whether siblings have made poor choices, and now you're helping pick up the pieces of, of that. Choices that others made and now you're having to deal with. It becomes very difficult to get and glean what God has for us in those kinds of situations because of our anger and our desire for vengeance. I'm ticked off at some people in my life. Now I'm working on it. So it's safe for you to walk the halls here. Okay. No, I, I'm simply saying that, that I, like many if not all of you, have had things happen to me that are the result of what other people did. And in some cases, you're dealing with that for, for years. And I have had times in my life where I was extremely angry because of what other people have foisted upon me through no choice of my own. How do you deal with that? How do I have to deal with that? I have to ask myself, as you have to ask yourself, how can I love a person who has hurt me? We're going to see in the Sermon on the Mount, you remember what Jesus says, love who? Love your... And this is not just abstract stuff, friends. Love the people who have hurt you, some unintentionally, some intentionally. How am I, how are you going to love them? Well, here's one way, and this is the way that helps me. This is what helps me to get a hold of my anger when I am tempted in that direction, when I think about the things that have been imposed upon me. I think about the fact that I am capable of doing the very thing that this person did to me. But for the grace of God, I could be the perpetrator rather than the victim. And an understanding of our own sin nature and our own propensities requires that we conclude that. That but for the grace of God, I could be doing or have done what that person did. You say, man, I can't imagine myself doing that, whatever that is. 
And I understand it's hard to imagine, but hear this. The only reason it's hard to imagine is because God has been gracious to you. But for the grace of God, your life and your propensities towards sin could be channeled in the same direction. And when I remember that, then my anger subsides. And I'm able to love my neighbor as myself. Because I see myself in that neighbor now. Which brings me to the fourth cause of suffering. Choices we make. So we should, I think, ask ourselves... Could I have done what this person did in other circumstances, but for the grace of God, had I been allowed to go that way? The answer to that scripturally is yes. And then we should also ask ourselves this. Why do I make such a big deal about what other people do and not much of a big deal about what I do? But we do, don't we? We get really righteously indignant about other people's sin but not so much about ours. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gave the parable of the man who had been forgiven much, but was unforgiving to the person who owed him relatively little? Jesus says of people who will not forgive, as we will see in Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount, in the disciples' prayer, he says, forgive us our trespasses, as what? We forgive. And the implication we'll see when we get to Matthew 6 is failure to forgive others means we have not experienced forgiveness ourselves. That we do not understand the enormity of that which has been forgiven us when we do not have the capacity to forgive others. So think about your own possibilities and potential for sin when you look at what others have done to you and then think about the enormity of what has been forgiven you and and contemplate that more than you contemplate other people's sin so let me give you some ways that we make choices that get us in difficulty these are not in your notes one is by simply defying god's will We encounter suffering because of the choices we make, and one such choice is just a blatant defiance of God's will. You see this, for example, in the prophet Jonah. God says to Jonah, go to Nineveh, and God defies the instruction, Jonah defies the instructions of God, and he goes in the opposite direction. And you all, many of you know what happened to Jonah. Jonah is ultimately uh, on a ship going in the opposite direction, a violent storm arises, the, uh, he is identified as the source of the problem through a series of means and he is thrown overboard and having been thrown overboard he is swallowed by a great fish and he is in this great fish for three days and three nights until he is finally vomited onto dry land what a story now when I was a kid I used to hear that story and, and the way it was told my Sunday school teachers would would say, in effect, hey, if you disobey God, you know, who knows, you might get swallowed by a big fish. <laughs> you know, so don't disobey God, right? Well, turns out the great fish was actually an act of God's mercy. Because absent the great fish, what happens to Jonah? 
He dies. He drowns. In fact, he praises God. Because he says, I was, in fact, going down for the third time. And you saved me by means of this miraculous occurrence. But Jonah was defying God's will, and God, in his mercy, spared him. Or, here's another way that we make choices that result in suffering. We defy common sense. We defy God's will, but we defy God's common sense. So look, if you're the daredevil type and your dare doesn't work out, then bad stuff can happen to you, okay? So all of you, you know, I'm going to get in trouble by saying some particular things that you guys are daredevils on. So I'm not going to. But if you do stuff that has the high potential for you to get hurt, get this, you might get hurt. So, and, and it doesn't mean when you call me from the hospital, I'm going to go, you know, you, you do a bunch of high-risk stuff. I told you not the bungee jump, Royal Gorge. But you did it anyway. Feel free to call me, and I won't say I told you so. But as a friend to a friend, I'm kind of telling you, I, I'm telling you now, okay? Don't walk so close to the cliff. But sometimes we defy common sense. Sometimes we suffer, here's a third way, choices we make. We suffer for obeying God's will. And that's not uncommon in the Christian life and not uncommon in the lives of those recorded in Scripture at all. Suffering precisely because you're obeying God's will. And that in turn puts you at odds with a fallen world, friends, family members, perhaps even church members, because you're obeying God's will. Precept four. There is no all-inclusive answer about suffering. There are no pat answers when it comes to pain and suffering. We can search the pages of Scripture and will not find one verse that completely and fully explains God's purpose for suffering. So God has purposes in suffering, multiple. We're going to see those beginning next week. So the idea that you have one answer to, to suffering is something that we should, we should lose. Precept 5, God's not obligated to give us a reason. Sometimes we may never know why God allowed a particular suffering in our lives. This humbling reality is that God is not obligated to give us a reason. His ways and thoughts do not compare to ours. And if you were here in the first hour, I said those who tend to worry and fret are people who are... Who are often control freaks. And not being able to control something puts you in a, in, in a realm, a sphere that you despise. And if you have suffering going on in your life and, and you don't know why, if you're a control freak, then the misery is going to be compounded for you. Dear friends, you cannot move forward in the Christian life unless you learn to trust the heart of God. And sometimes you don't, you've heard it said, you don't see his hand. And there are some times when you don't know his plan. But we must always trust his heart. And though I don't know, I know that he does, and I trust his designs for me. And unless you can resolve that, Lord, even though I'm not in control, even, and that is exemplified by the fact that I don't know what's going on, I don't know why this is happening,
but I have cultivated a relationship with you that demands that I trust your heart. You have taught me in your word and in my experience to trust your loving heart. I'm going to move on, but let me just ask you, friends, do you have ample reason to trust the heart of God? And in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, you absolutely have every reason to trust the loving heart of God. Why? Because you're suffering, and yet Jesus, God the Son, has suffered for you. So as you ask yourself, why God? And what are you really like, God, that you would let this happen? In Jesus, God has shown us most clearly what he is like. And though you don't see all of his designs, or even sometimes any of his designs, at a particular point in time, you can always know his heart. Precept six, God knows our pain and is with us when we suffer. Part of our confusion lies in not understanding what God's role in our suffering is. We simply do not understand how an all-powerful God could sit by and let us hurt. But Jesus, God the Son, knows the extent of our suffering. No suffering has ever come to us that has not first passed through the heart and the hand of God. Precept seven, God is always at work. God's presence during suffering is like a backstage worker in a drama. It's active, involved, working to fulfill the ultimate thrust of the play, although usually hidden from the audience's view. But he is just as involved as ever. That is why when we quote verses like Romans 8, 28, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. But that good is an ultimate good. That good is not an immediate good. It's not an instant good. It's an ultimate good. And again, the question is, do I believe that? Do I trust that? Precept 8, quickly. God can redeem and does redeem suffering. Even suffering can have a redemptive purpose. Even in the midst of our own confusion and pain, Job contended that he knew his Redeemer lived. And Job came out of that suffering better equipped to serve God, knowing his God in a fuller and more profound way. We heard just a couple of weeks ago an exa- a testimony of suffering from our sister Hope, and God redeemed that suffering, didn't he? God is, and is in the process of still redeeming that suffering to teach her a greater and more profound relationship with himself. And then lastly... There is an end to all suffering for the believer. The Bible states clearly that those who don't believe will perish and suffer eternal damnation. But for Christians, a time will come when every tear will be wiped away from our eyes. There is an end only to all suffering that is endured by the believers. So if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, whatever suffering you're enduring now, it is a temporary suffering. I said to my daughter Annie in one of my many conversations with her over the years, as she was not able to sleep, and I was summoned into her room to calm her little soul. And she would, uh, she would just be uh, down. And she, back in those days, would tend toward melancholy. She, she hasn't exhibited that in the, in the last several years, but she, she would back then. And so I would find myself uh, consoling her. We had, a, we had a little box. that I said, well, I want you to have this box with index cards in it. And I want you to write on those index cards all of the blessings that God has given you. And we put a label on that box. It was called the happy feeling box. 
And whenever Annie was down, we would pop open the box and we would go through her blessings. And those were precious times going through those, those blessings with, with that little girl. And uh, I said this to her. I said, Annie, no matter what's going on in the present, there is always a better future for those who know Jesus. There's always a better future for those who know Jesus. Remember that, dear friends, in the midst of your suffering. Let's bow before the Lord. Father, thank you that you are in control of your world and in control of our circumstances. Lord, there are so many things that, as we read in history, that could have happened so easily. And had they happened, they would have had such a ripple effect on other subsequent events. Changed the course of history, we say. And from our perspective, we're intrigued by what if. But Lord, I need to bring myself back to the reality that with our sovereign God, there is no what if. There is what is happening because you are in control of it and you have ordained it. And you have ordained it for your ultimately good ends. In the midst of the fire, it is sometimes hard for us to remember the ultimate good. It is sometimes hard, Lord, for us to remember your loving heart. We get so caught up in the fog of the difficulty that we cannot see clearly Jesus on the cross for us. And so, Lord, we thank you for this time to help clear that fog, to help us in the, in the calm of this time to look at, at your word and to be reminded of who you are, what you are like, and what you are seeking to accomplish in our lives. So I thank you for that for my own life. I thank you for that for my brothers and sisters. And I pray, Lord, that this week you will help us to contemplate your purposes in suffering in preparation for our time together next Lord's Day. I pray that you will help us to be able to put this into practice this afternoon and this week as we encounter the difficulties that face us of different shapes and sizes and varieties that you, your spirit will call to mind these truths and that we will endure those truths with a joy that we did not have because we're reminded of your goodness and your good purposes. We ask you, Lord, to be with us this week and to grant us safety as we serve you and to bring us back together to learn of you next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.